0: All right, friends, if you will, go ahead, grab a seat and grab your Bibles as well. And I'm going to invite you to join me in a couple passages this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 24, and we're also going to be in Genesis chapter 1. Now, with that said, today we're starting, and I'm stoked. We are starting a brand new series that will take about nine months to go through. Don't worry, we'll have a couple mini-series in between. But we're going to take about nine months and walk through the grand narrative of the entire Bible. And to help us along the way, we've created some resources for you. The first one is the field guide of the Bible Uh, binder. Uh, Go ahead. If you have yours, would you just raise your hand? Go ahead and hold it up real high. Let me see if you have pictures up. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Now, if you do not have one, that's okay. We'd love to give you one with this caveat. We have enough for everyone to have one. (laughs) So please don't like, you know, oh, I forgot mine this week and pick up another one. By the end of it, you've got 15 different ones sitting at home. Uh, Just pick up one. Um, The other caveat is I would ask you, if you're going to pick one up, please use it. If it's with something you're like, no, I'm not really going to use it, that's okay. Leave it for the next person because we expect people to be coming throughout the year that we'll give these to. Also, the material inside, you have the month of January, but every month we're going to add to it. We're going to give you the next month on that month's first Sunday. And so this, by the end of it, it's going to be a pretty thick field guide to help you walk through the scriptures. So, um, in fact, if you, oh, by the way, if you you need one, raise your hand, just hold it up. Our our, our ushers are here to help. We've got one right down here who needs uh, a binder. Uh, Just hold them up real high. A couple here as well. But inside, you'll see, there's a whole bunch of stuff. We have um, an organization of the chronology of scripture. We have some maps. We have glossary of terms. So when you're reading the Bible, are like, oh, I, I'm not sure what that word means. Here's what it means. We have some important places. We also have how to get the most out of your personal Bible time, because in here is a daily Bible reading, Monday through Friday, that'll take us through nine months. So it's going to be a great thing. We also have our group guides in here. So group leaders, your questions are already in here. You don't have to wait for it. They're already in here. And we have sermon notes. So you can fill them out every Sunday. So We hope this is a great resource to you. Now, there's another resource I want to give you uh, to use. We believe that God's Word is for everyone, not just for the preacher. And so we want you to know God's Word. And we have purchased um, some worship Bibles. These are here every Sunday. If you forget your Bible, pick one up. Uh, And in fact, if you don't have a Bible this morning, we're going to be going from Scripture like a paper thing, not the big Bible on the sky. We're going to use these today. So if you want to follow along and don't have a Bible with you, raise your hand. We have some Bibles. They'll, They'll give them to you. Just leave them in your seat when you're done in the morning so you can have that to follow along as well. Are we ready? There we go. Someone asks, why are we doing this? I mean, nine months, going through the Bible, why? Here's the answer. I think that we, as the American church, have a problem with the Bible. In fact, if I were to be so bold, by the way, is that safe for your preacher to say that we have a problem with the Bible? I'm going to say it anyway. because Okay. I don't think it's just that we have one problem with the Bible. I'm afraid that we have many problems. In fact, probably three big problems with the Bible. Um, the first big problem that I think many of us have with the Bible is that many of us just don't read it. Um, so we know the Bible's important. We know it's the Word of God. We believe it, but we don't know it. So if I were to ask, and please don't raise your hand. Don't just keep your hand down. But if I were to ask you to raise your hand and ask you how many of us read the Bible every day, I, I don't think every one of us would raise our hands. And then if I were to ask a follow-up question, say, hey, and how many of us have read the Bible cover to cover? I think the number would be even smaller. Now, that's not to put anyone down or make you feel bad. Not at all. Not at all. But I think it's kind of crazy that most of us who have called on Jesus as Lord and Savior, we are living and believing that Jesus is Lord. And we're living our lives based on a book that most of us have never read the whole thing. And that seems crazy to me. So many of us don't read the Bible. And then here's the second reason. This is a big reason why I think most of us don't read the Bible when we don't read the Bible. It's because we just don't know how to read the Bible. Can we confess that the Bible is not that easy to read? Anyone else just gonna give me a little head nod here? You're a preacher. This is what I do for a living. This is my job. And I still daily come to things. I'm like, what in the world? What does this mean? Why couldn't this be simpler? And here's part of the reason why it is a difficult book to read. It was not written for 21st century Americans. I know that's crazy. The world did not begin with you and me. Can you get that? There are many reasons that it's hard. It's complex. It's dense. It's a collection of ancient documents, many of which were written 3,000 years ago. It was written to people on different continents who spoke different languages. Also, we sometimes think that this is one book. This is not one book. This is a library of 66 books. So like when you go into a public library and you go into a different section, that's what you're doing when you go to a different book of the Bible. You're going to a different section in the library. And so it gets really, really confusing very, very fast. And it's because of this, I think when you step into the Bible, you step into a strange world that many of us don't know what to do with. Now, it's an incredible Bible or book. In fact, it is the best-selling book of all time. There are 25 million Bibles sold every year. That's incredible to me. Over 700 different translations, like in different languages of the whole Bible. And then there are certain portions of the Bible, if you take all the little parts that have been translated in different languages, over 2,000 different ones. And there are over 100 different English translations of the Bible. So there's a lot of stuff going on there. But I love what one author recently said. He said, it is the best-selling book that's never read. And so I think a lot of us, we read it or we don't know how to read it, so we don't read it really well. And then, and then here's the big one for our culture. Are you ready? Some of us, many of us even, have issues with what the Bible actually says. Can, can we be honest enough to say that some of us, when we read the Bible, it makes us feel uh, anxious about it because we see things that are really, really uncomfortable. I think there's been this tectonic shift between my generation and my parents' generation. And there's another shift that's happening between my generation and the next generation. And here it is. My parents could read certain parts of the Bible. They could read the story of Joshua and Jericho. And they take from that, that God is good, that he can conquer all, that he's with me no matter what. And that is true. But many people in my generation and the next generation read the very same stories. And they don't see a good God. They see genocide. Genocide. And then they run into a real problem because they see other things in the Bible they like. They're like, man, the Bible talks about justice and love and caring for the marginalized. And that's all true and all good. But now they're stuck like problem and promise. And so what do they do? They pick and choose which parts of Scripture they will trust. And they end up with a Frankenstein faith. It moves around sort of, but it's really dead. So this is why we're going to take some time over the next nine months. And we're going to go through the field guide to the Bible. Because I want our whole church and our elders want our whole church and our staff wants our whole church to know the Bible personally, confidently, and able to trust that God is speaking to them when they read the Bible. So we're going to take about nine months. We're going to walk through this and we're going to give the big story. We're going to kind of deal with a lot of the little stories that are fun and weird and interesting. And so let's begin. If we're going to do this, by looking at the overarching story of the Bible. And you can do that by joining me on page 12 of your binder. On page 12, you will find a chart. And I'm going to invite you to sort of fill this in as we go. I'm going to do this quick, and then we're going to jump into the, the, the meat of today's text. But here's what I want you to see. The Bible can be divided into four parts. I'm indebted to John Mark Hicks, who showed this to me about 20, 25 years ago, and it has helped so much. So I want to share it with you now. The Bible can be divided into four parts. Part number one begins there with creation. Creation. God enters the scene speaking and all things come into bloom. And it is good. In fact, it's not just good. It's very good. That's Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So we get one page of everything is good. And then you get to Genesis chapter 3. And this perfection of God is broken when sin enters the world and we go down to the fall. Right? That's why it's drawn this way, perfection, and then fall. And so you have Adam and Eve, they sin, they break the heart of God, they commit treason against the cosmic king, and everything falls apart. That's Genesis chapter 3. And you see, it continue to devolve all the way through Genesis chapter 11 until we get to the third part of the story of Scripture. And this is the big one. It's the rescue, the rescue. Because I can't save myself, you can't save yourself. But God promises, I will rescue you. Now, John Mark Hicks, he uses like really big words. He calls this the redemptive trajectory. I'm just going to go with my limited brain power and say rescue. And then after the rescue, there will come a day, friends, and we see this in the book of Revelation, where Christ will return. So you have creation, fall, rescue, and return. Now, if you want to break this down a little bit more, and this will help frame the rest of the nine months, is simply this. In the rescue, there are three parts of the rescue. You have in the Old Testament, God rescuing people through the nation of Israel. Then you have Jesus coming. He is the center point of history, followed by the church age in which we now live. By the way, we are now closer to the return of Jesus in this very second than you were when you walked in this morning. It's coming. That's the story of the Bible. Now, you'll notice there is one more... Blank on your graph. Do you notice? It's above all, it's the center of all, and here it is. Above all things is God. Before there was creation, Before there was a fall, before there was a need for rescue, there was God, infinite. The three-in-one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They do not need us. They did not create us because they were lonely. God himself was full, whole in himself. But out of the overflow of his love for himself, he created life. Just as a loving husband and wife will have a child. It's not that they need the child, but it's an expression of love. And he created you and me. God is preeminent. He's above all. He's before all. And at the end of the story of the world, he will still be there. Friends, I need to say this to you. God was here a lot longer than you and I were. And he is the one that the story is about. The story is not about me and it's not about you. In fact, if you want to write this down, here's the main point for the entire uh, time today. The Bible and even history itself is about God. God first... Coming and speaking to people But then God coming as Christ And then God staying as the Holy Spirit It is all about God So for the remainder of our time I think we should answer this very important question If it's all about God What then is God like? What is God like? Now there is no way in just a few minutes For us to exhaust who God is In fact if we had lifetimes we could not do that Amen? Amen? Come on now Think about this for me If God is infinite and we're finite, what chance do we have of infinitely expressing who God is? Come on. Like when you get to heaven and we get there and we see God, we see the throne room, not one of us is going to go, God, I get it. I get it now. No. You're going to look at him and you're going to go, I don't get it. But it's glorious. He's good. He's big. Because the fact is, you and I are not God. Even when sin is fully erased from the planet, we will still be lower than God. So we will never fully understand God. In fact, it is impossible to exhaustively understand and know God. But it is possible to accurately know God. You can't exhaustively know Him, but you can accurately know Him. Uh, let me give you an example um, I love my wife, she's wonderful. Now I don't understand her. I, I just don't. I've tried. It's eighteen years now, and I'm still going. Whoa! I didn't know that. That's cool. Whoa! I didn't know that. That's that's something. And I mean, I'm just learning. I'm learning. It's like what Oscar Wilde said. He said, "Women are to be loved, not understood." You can. I won't know my wife. Exhaustively, but I can know her accurately, same with God. So let me give you four things so we can know him accurately today. Number one, God is powerful. We get this from Genesis chapter one and verse one. This will be on page number one of your pew Bibles if you wanna look with me. Genesis chapter one, verse one is a familiar passage. We read it often, but it is a framing passage for all of history. It begins this way. In the beginning, God, wait, wait, Who? In the beginning, God. It didn't say in the beginning, Josh. It didn't say in the beginning, you. It said in the beginning, God. For God is the preeminent one in all of human history. Not Adam, not Moses, not David. No one else is preeminent in the story. God is the hero of history. It is his story. And so when we come to the text, let's always look to see where God is in the text. In the beginning, God. And it goes on from there. God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that is simply an ancient Near Eastern way of saying God made everything. He made it all. And and, and so we read this, we go, so God is powerful. And you're like, yeah, no Doug Diggs. Isn't that implied in the name God? Yeah, but he's like really powerful. Uh, uh, Like powerful. Like, uh, let me me give you... uh, this is the best I know how to do to express this. I'm going to show you a picture. You want to see a picture? Say yes. Okay, this picture, it'll keep you up at night maybe, or maybe make you, I don't know, but here it is. Are you ready? This picture right here is a picture posted by a scientist of just a little sliver of our universe. And I'm told, again, I'm, I'm just taking his word for it, but that every one of those little pin tricks of light is not a star, but it is a galaxy. By the way, can you count those for me? Go go ahead and get started. I'll give you Just go ahead. One, two. I mean, and I'm told that in each one of those galaxies are over a billion stars. And by the way, I'm told that around each one of those stars, those billions of stars in each one of those galaxies, around each one of those stars is at least one planet. Is anyone else's mind just kind of going, er? It's like that blue window of death that you get on your window screen, like when everything just crashes. Like That's what I think when I see this. In fact, I'm told that in this picture, there are places out there where a teaspoon of matter weighs as much as 200 million elephants. There are little blinky stars that blink on and off so fast, 30 times per second, on, off, on, off, on, off. There are places that gobble up light and matter. These are called black holes. In that... Sliver of the universe that our God simply spoke and it came into being. I wonder, do we really know that God is powerful? And I'm afraid that we don't. And here's why I don't think that we know just how powerful he is. It's because what is it that we ask him for when we actually pray? Have you ever thought about what are the prayers? Like, are my prayers big enough to represent the bigness of God? Because our prayers often reveal how big we think our God is. And so I wonder if God's like, really? Come on, digs. I created everything and you're asking for a good parking place at the mall during Christmas time. Okay, that is a miracle, I admit, okay? But he's like, am I the mall parking place God or am I the God who created all of this? And the resounding word of scripture is that your God is infinitely bigger than you even imagine. God is powerful. And then the second thing that we begin to see as we read through Genesis chapter 1 is something else about him. Is that he is not simply powerful, but the second word I want you to write down is, he is perfect. He is perfect. He is the powerful God, but he's also the perfect God. You say, where do we get that from the text digs? Well, I'm glad that you asked because he continues in verse 3 with these words. It says, and God said, let there be light. Okay, so we know he's powerful, but where is the perfection? Perfection. Well, it says, and there was light. Verse 4, God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Did you notice that little word there? He saw that it was good. Hey, I like that. Perfect. An interesting little word that we're good. It's not only there that he says it, he says it seven different times. By the way, in Hebrew, uh, numbers have significance. The number seven represents perfection. Seven different times he said, is good, is good, is good, is good. And the Hebrew here would go, oh, it's perfect. Exactly. He's the God of perfection. But it's not simply speaking about what he creates, for an imperfect being cannot make perfect everything. Have you tried to do everything perfect in your life? How's it going? Anyone else? Like, I don't even get out of bed perfectly. Like, it looks like a horror movie. and I flop on the floor. And you're like, you can't even get up perfectly. But our God does all things perfectly. Can I tell you why this matters to you? He didn't make a mistake with you. He looks at you. Yes, sinful without Jesus, I get it. But he looks at you and he says, I made you. I have a purpose for you. I don't make junk. Doesn't matter if you're an accident to your mommy and daddy. There may be accidental parents, but there's no such thing as an accidental kid because God makes us. You, will say next week, are made in the image of God. He's the perfect God. Now here, I need to be really clear here. When I say perfect... This is more than that he makes good stuff. The the, the theological word for perfection is the word holy. Like it means set apart, that he is different, that he is designed, he is functional, he is everything apart from bigger than, more than you and I can imagine. He's without fault or flaw or any issue at all. In fact, Wayne Grudem, the theologian, says that holiness means God is qualitatively other. He's not made of the same stuff that you and I are made of. In fact, scientists tell us that when time, space, and matter came into existence, they all came into existence at the same moment. Why? Because they cannot exist independent of each other. They had to come in at the same time. Do I understand how that works? Nope. But they're smart. I'm not. I'll listen. And they then go on to say, whatever created this universe or whoever created this, therefore, is not bound by space or time. And is not made of matter but something other. He sits above, apart, separate from that which is created. I hope you understand that God is infinitely powerful but he is infinitely different, perfect from all the things that you and I know or see. In fact, in Revelation chapter 4 verse 8, you might want to write this down. It's not in your notes, it's next to Isaiah chapter 6 reference that I give you in your notes. But in Revelation 4... Verse 8, we get this picture of heaven. It's just a snapshot of what's happening right now. And we're told that there are these four living creatures and they are wild looking. We're told that they have six wings, which by the way, okay. They have six wings. Other angels only get two wings. I, I wonder if they're faster. Like, do they fly faster? You're not, mm, and the others with two wings like, this stinks. I, I, don't, I don't know. And we're told they have six wings, but they also have eyes all over themselves. They're covered in eyes, which again, ADHD brain. I just kind of like, what does that look like? Right? Like if you know someone and you see them, they're covered with eyes. What do you think? You're like, creep, what are you looking at? It's like, I can't help it. I was made this way. It's just the way it is. But but we're told their job is to see what God looks like and say what they see. They're basically like heavenly GoPros. They just helicopter around God and they look at him from all angles and they say, wow. Yeah. And, and if we were there, we'd say, what do you see? What do you see? And they say, holy. Really, really. Tell us more. Well, he's holy, holy. Well, what kind of holy, holy? Well, he's holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He is not mere mortal. He is not made of the stuff you and I are. And the only word that they can think to use to describe him, holy. And so Jesus, when he describes God, he calls him the holy one. When the demons who have rebelled against God, when they see Jesus, do you know what the demons call Jesus? No? Okay, here it is. He's the holy one of God. So you have the Holy Father. You have the Holy One of God. And then then, the third person of the Trinity. What's his name again, church? Holy Spirit. Like his first part of his name is holy. It's like uh, we should get this. It's obvious. It's like they're not hiding the ball. God is holy. In fact, 400 times in scripture, God is called holy. 400 times. He is holy perfect he is morally right he has done nothing wrong he does not miss baskets our god is perfect first john though chapter 4 verse 8 says anyone who does not love does not know god because god is love and it says that twice in that same passage but this is the only passage that specifically says god is blank love now i want to be very clear god is love but it says it twice and elsewhere it says 400 times god is holy my question to us this morning is if we were to visit a typical church and perhaps even in this church just listening to the songs we sing the the sermons we hear the training we get the messaging that we have would we say that God is 400 times holy or 400 times loving what do we hear more of And often I think we think of God as he's love and maybe with a smidge of holiness, of moral perfection, of righteousness. But no friends, he is infinitely perfect. He is holy. Like I think so many of us probably think of it's not the holy father. But we often think of that Jesus calls the father the loving father. And that the demons call Jesus the loving one of God. And the Holy Spirit is really named love spirit. Like he's really chill and he goes to Coachella or something. And we treat them this way. And and, and hear me, I believe God is love, absolutely. But is it possible that we have flipped things upside down and gotten things out of proportion here? That God is not our buddy to be palled around with. He is the infinite God to be worshipped and honored and celebrated. That is the one that we are revealed to here in the text, which makes the story of the Bible all the more incredible because we have a perfectly holy God who wants relationship with, with us. Wow. With these rebels. And God says, I love you and I am coming to save you. Me? Have you met me and you're coming to save me? Me? I know me and you know me better than I know me and you're still coming to save me. And that is the third thing I want you to see that he is, yes, he's powerful and he's perfect, but God is personal. God is personal. God knows you by name. He knows every hair on your head. Some of you are looking up there going, uh, that's not hard. I get it. Okay. But he knows, okay, he knows all the back hair on you, whatever it is. He knows you. He loves you. He knew you before you were born. And the story of Scripture is that God enters into the story because if he's not of this place, if He is outside of space, time, and not made of matter, then there is no way for me, who's locked into time and space and made of matter, there's no way for me to go to him. And anything I could say about him would be a guess unless he reveals himself to us. And the Scripture is the self-revelation of God. Which is why be very careful when you hear someone say, This is what I think God is like, and they don't go to the scriptures for their answer. God reveals Himself and He shows up, He keeps coming. And we see this all throughout. In fact, in chapter two, that we'll get into later, God creates humanity. He does that in chapter one as well. He begins by coming to us Um, the first man, the first woman, Adam and Eve. They co- he comes to Adam and Eve. Put this slide up for me if you don't mind. Let's just look at it again in the story of Scripture. So God comes to Adam and Eve. And this is one of the most intimate pictures in all of Scripture. God comes and we're told he comes face to face. He breathes into Adam the breath of life. I mean, this is, this is awkwardly close. This is like close talker close. Do you know anyone who's a close talker? Anyone ever meet a close talker? Some of you are the close talker because you're not ready. Okay. I remember years ago, there was a guy, a great guy at church years ago at another church. He a close talker. And so on Sunday, he'd always come up and he was really encouraging, but he was really, really close with his encouragement. You catch me? And so I learned if I could just like put one foot forward and I kind of lean back like this, I could get about this much room until he figured out what I was doing and he didn't like the distance. So he actually stood between my legs right here and got. and I was like, this is worse. I don't like it. But the scripture says that God comes face to face with Adam and breathes into Adam the breath of life. He is not a distant God who speaks at you. He is the God who speaks into you. The life you have, life I have, is from the very breath of God. And then not with just Adam, but then the world breaks because Adam and Eve, they just blow it up. By the way, I've told you before, I'm glad I'm not in the story because then everyone would think of how bad the world is whenever they hear the name Josh. But Adam and Eve, they mess things up, they fall, they commit treason, and God is so gracious. He doesn't wipe his hands of us. He doesn't say, I'm done. He doesn't treat humanity like a lot of our dads might have treated us when we borrowed the car and messed it up. You know, you bring it back home, the fender's hanging off, backseat full of McDonald's french fries. He's like, really? I give you this to use and you blow it up? But God doesn't walk away. What does he do? He comes again in Genesis chapter 12 to an old man, an old woman named Abraham and Sarah. And he says, I want relationship with you and through you, the whole world. And then he comes to a man named Moses and then David and then the prophets. And then finally, in the fullness of time, we're told that God doesn't simply come in this vague form, but rather he meets us and he comes and moves into our neighborhood, Jesus Christ. In fact, that's really what John 1, 14 means when it says, and he dwelt among us. It means that he bought the house next door and said, can I be your neighbor? That God says, I don't want to simply be around you. I want to be with you. And then he starts calling other people, the apostles and the disciples, and they follow him. And then Christ, he ascends to the father and he sort of almost like tag teams the Holy Spirit in. As he's going up, the Holy Spirit's coming down. He's like, they killed me. Good luck. And then he comes, the Holy Spirit now fills us and he calls the church and people to him. And now throughout the history of the church, God is still with us. And it's an amazing thing in Christ. God was around us, but now in the Holy Spirit, Christ Is in us. He lives with you and me. He is a personal God, which again is all the more incredible. How can God be personal to me and to you? Because He's holy. So, how does a holy God who cannot be with sin come and be with sinful people? And the answer is the fourth P God has a plan. God has a plan. God is powerful. God is perfect. God is personal and he has a plan to fix all that we've broken and all the things that have gone wrong in this world. And this is where I want us to now go to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 24, verse 27. Luke 24, 27. I'll give you a second to go there with me. But Luke 24, 27, Jesus has... Been raised from the dead, and he is now meeting with these two disciples, and they don't recognize him because he's been glorified, meaning that his body is just a little different. So they don't recognize Jesus, and they're talking about how sad they are that Christ died. They're like, we thought he was the one who's going to save us. And there's this moment; it's one of the most beautiful moments in Scripture where Christ reveals himself to these men, and he says these words in verse 27 of Luke 24. He says, "And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, by the way, that's just a Hebraic way of saying, and beginning with the whole Old Testament." Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. He says, look, I want you to see from the beginning, from that moment of shame in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, all the way through, God has been working a plan and it began here, but it's always been leading up to me. So in other words, go ahead and put this next slide up. So God's been meeting with people. And then... Jesus is saying this very simple thing. All those stories point to Jesus. Next slide. It's all about him. Every bit of it, the story, the, the plan terminates on Jesus Christ. That God has been at work to save you and to save me. He's not surprised by your sin. He's not thrown off by the bad decisions and the harm that we've caused each other and has been caused to us. But he knows and he has a plan. I saw something Recently, an image that has been in my my social media feed the past couple months. uh, And it's just kind of blown my mind. I want to show this to you. This next slide here is kind of an odd picture. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this before. Maybe it's been on your social media feed as well. But this is, as I understand it, it was an attempt by a computer science genius and a pastor at taking all of the cross-references in the Bible and showing their connection points. You say, well, what's a cross-reference? Well, a cross-reference is like on the bottom of your page, maybe there will be a a letter somewhere in the text, and you'll look down at the bottom, there's a footnote, and it says that this verse refers to that verse in this other part of the Bible. That's a cross-reference. So one of the ones we looked at over Christmas was Isaiah chapter 7, where it says, Jesus will be called Emmanuel. That's Isaiah chapter 7. And then in Matthew chapter 1, we see the cross-reference, where he's born and he's called Emmanuel. So all these cross references are showing up and then, and then down here at the bottom You see all these white lines These long weird lines Each one of those lines represents one chapter of the Bible Not a book, but a chapter of the Bible And if you got real close You could see that they're grouped So there's gray ones here, that's one book These are white, so this is the second book And then gray, then white, gray, white And those are the different books of the Bible And then the different length that you can see By the way, can you see that really, really, really long one up there? Each one of those are the chapters, so the, the longer the chapter, the longer the line. That very long one there, what's the longest chapter in the Bible, church, do you know? That's Psalm 119. This is a picture. And then starting all the way back here from Genesis all the way to Revelation, you have these connection points. And the colors of the cross-references, it's color-coded to the distance between the references. So the farther the reference, the greener. And then you have these really close ones here. Did you know that there are 63,779 cross-references in the Bible? 63,779 cross-references. And it's an incredible thing to me, and I've been thinking a lot about this over the past few weeks... That God has been working on this story for a long time. Long before you and I ever opened our eyes and cried our first cry, God was in the process of putting together a story and he was connecting things. And it's all the more impressive to me because this story was not written by one single human author. See, if you had one human author, you could kind of go, oh yeah, a lot of planning, but they could kind of reference things, okay, this this hero leaves here, but he comes in here. This event happens there, and that that happens there. And this is going to connect later, and these things are going to happen. I mean, you could see that, but friends, the Bible is written by roughly 40 different authors over 1,500 years on three different continents. God is at work creating the cross-reference of history. He is the one who has a plan and it will not be thwarted. I love what Isaiah 46, 10 says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. God says, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. He has a plan that he's been working from beginning of time until the end of time. You can't thwart his plan, friend. It will come to pass. I can't defeat God's plan. It will come to pass. I love what Pastor Louis Giglio says. He makes this statement. He says, God's got cross-references all over the place in your story. See, when I look at this, I'm encouraged because it's like if God can do that with history, maybe God can cross-reference and work things out in my life. Maybe he can work something out in your life. God has cross-references all over your story. The fact you're here today, God was working something. He's bringing you to this point. I believe that. Some of, you, some of you know, you're self-aware enough to know that you should not even be here today. You know, some of you, were it not for that friend, were it not for that delay, were it not for that moment, you would not be here. You'd be dead. And yet God, working his will through the story of history and in your life, he is cross-referencing things now, I know some of us, you hear this and you kind of go, well, that sounds great, Josh. Beautiful graphic, love it, thanks. But I got other stuff in my life. It's not just roses. I've got death in my life. I've got a divorce coming. I've got broken relationships. I've got job issues. I've got health issues. I've got these things. I've got this pervasive sin that I just feel like I can't get rid of. It happens in the darkness of night. No one knows, but it just is there. I don't know what to do. And you just feel like I can't. And God, I mean, it's great. He's got the big picture, maybe for some good people, but not for me. And here's what I need to say to you. Please hear me. We're going to get into the rest of the story next week, but hear this this morning. God is bigger than whatever you want to put on the he can't blank line. He is cross-referencing things. Do you think that the God who saw that he would have to send his son to die and was willing to do so would be stumped by our lives? He is already at work preparing people, places, and events this year for you. And this time next year, we will look back and you'll say, I see the points. So here's my question as we come to an end this morning, because we're going to get into it deep next week, but here's where we just end. Are you open to the bigness of God today? Are, Are you open to the possibility that this life is not about you, but it's about glorifying God? Are you open to the possibility that He is infinitely powerful, that he's more perfect than we can imagine, but that he's also personal? He knows you, he loves you, and he wants relationship with you. And are you open to the possibility that he has a plan for your life to bring glory to him and other people to salvation? If you are, I've got good news for you. You may be blown away by what he does over the next year. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to give you a moment to respond and talk to the Father. In whatever words you need to say, just tell him what's on your mind. Perhaps you need to tell him how you feel abandoned. Or perhaps you need to tell him that you feel excited for what this means. Perhaps today some of us need to say yes to Jesus' invitation of salvation. I'll be waiting for you. I'll even be here down front. We'll go old school invitation. If you would like to receive salvation today in baptism, I'd love to meet you here and we'll talk about that. And for others in here, you just need to know that this is, that God's not done with you yet. The story's not over, He has a plan. So, Father, I ask that you meet each person where they are today, that they would know without a doubt that you have come. You're powerful, you're perfect. You personally love us and you have a plan that will bring all good things to a close at the end of all things. But in this moment, I pray that we will not be missing it and we will not be left behind, but rather that we will come to you, we will receive you and trust you. I pray you speak to those who need salvation today, that they would be convicted that they cannot save themselves and it's foolish to try and that they will say yes to you. Father, I pray for those who today need to take their next step in trusting you. Would you give them the confidence to know that you are the God who cross-references creation. In all things, Jesus, get glory in this place. We pray this in your name, amen.